Well, if you'll open your Bible this morning to the book of Revelation, chapter number 21, here we are on the Sunday before Thanksgiving, and we are in the middle of a little series of sermons on heaven. And as we think about Thanksgiving, I'll tell you this, one of the things that all of us should be thankful for is heaven. If you believe that, say amen. Last Sunday morning, we talked about what heaven will be like, and I talked about how heaven will be new. When we get there, we're going to be taken aback at how new everything is, and as the years go on, it's never going to get old because nothing ages or decays in heaven. We talked last week about how heaven is going to be a perfect place. There's no more sickness nor sorrow. There's no more pain. There's no more death. All of that has passed away, and not only that, when we get to heaven, we're going to be satisfied because we are going to be in the physical presence of Jesus Christ. Now, my intention today was to preach a sermon entitled, What Will Heaven Look Like? Last week, what will heaven be like? Today, what will heaven look like? And when I began studying this last Monday, Revelation chapter 21, I was learning and reading and studying about the wall that, will, that is in heaven, about the 12 gates in heaven, the foundations around those gates, the stones on those foundations, the beautiful colors in heaven. One of the things that's going to make heaven so incredible will be the, the brightness and the brilliance of the colors. And so we were going to think about that today. We were going to think about the size of heaven, the dimensions of heaven. The Bible says it is a city that is built like a cube. We we're going to be thinking about the street of heaven. And, and as I was working on all that last week, and then last Monday night, when I actually started writing out the sermon introduction, I wrote this. Here's what I said. I said, you might be wondering why we're talking about heaven when everything's going crazy on earth. I mean, here we are in a pandemic. The nation is completely divided. It seems like everything that could be going wrong on earth is going wrong. And so why in the world would we be talking about heaven when we should be talking about earth? And that was my introduction. And so I was going to try to kind of answer that question quickly in the introduction. And the more I worked on that, I thought, you know, what I should do is get that question out of the introduction and just make a whole sermon on that. What is the advantage of talking about heaven when things are so crazy on the earth? And then next week we'll come back and look at what heaven will look like. Now you're in Revelation chapter 21. Let me just show you this while you're there. Beginning in verse 9 and then through the end of the chapter, verse number 27, we have a clear description of what heaven looks like. And so I would encourage you this week, take a few minutes and read that if you can. And then next week when we actually think about that and, and we develop that and, and study that a little deeper, I think it'll mean even more to you. But for today, the question is, why should we think about heaven? And so turn, if you would, to the book of Colossians. It's a few pages back from where you are in Revelation. And in Colossians chapter number 3, I want us to look at a, a classic verse in the Bible. And I think this will be the best place for us to begin our time together this morning. In Colossians chapter number 3, and in verse number 2, Paul is writing now to the Christians living in this city called Colossae, and he's telling them how to live life down here on earth. And yet, as he's giving instruction for how to live life on earth, he says something that it, it's a little bit unusual, and we probably wouldn't expect him to say this. Verse number 2 of Colossians 3, set your mind on things above. 
not on things on the earth. And so Paul said it's going to be important for you if you're going to live, he says to us today, in a pandemic. If you're going to live in a nation that is completely divided and where there's anger, hatred, demonization of people who disagree with you, if you're going to live in this world and live a victorious, overcoming, joyful, happy, peaceful life, here's one of the things you're going to have to do. You're going to have to set your mind on things above. And so that's the phrase that I want to build this sermon around today. Set your mind on things above. Let's say that together. Set your mind on things above. That phrase, set your mind, literally means exercise your mind, discipline your mind, make your mind think about heaven. And there's something about thinking about heaven that will change your perspective of earth. Let me say it this way. Thinking about heaven does to your perspective what wearing glasses does to your vision. Now, some of us have to wear glasses. I had to start wearing glasses several years ago, and I have a prescription in this, these glasses. And what does that prescription do? What do these glasses do? It enables me to see you more clearly. If I take these glasses off, I can still see you, but you're just not as clear as you are with them on. So I have the glasses on, you're clear as a bell. Some of you, I can see you've already fallen off to sleep, but I can see that. It's very clear to me right now because everything is clear with glasses. Glasses makes things clearer, or they make things clearer. Well, when we think about heaven, it makes life clearer. And so as you're going through life, the Bible says one of the secrets to living a victorious life is to look at life through the lens, as it were, of heaven, to filter it through what is happening in heaven. And if you'll look at life from the perspective of heaven, you'll see things more clearly. Now, let me illustrate that with some different examples today. First thing I would say is this, thinking about heaven helps us to see our problems more clearly. Now, what I know today is all of us here have problems. Everybody in this room today has a problem. Some have a financial problem, a health problem, a family problem, an emotional problem. Those listening at home today, you have the same type. Of, we, we all have problems. But if we will begin to look at our problems from the perspective of heaven, it, 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 it's amazing how it changes our outlook, our perspective, and even our attitude about our problems. Now, turn back a few pages more to 2 Corinthians chapter number. Four. Because in 2 Corinthians 4, we read a, a verse here that Paul gives us that helps us to understand the importance of seeing our problems from the perspective of heaven. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 17. Notice, first of all, that Paul says to us, remember this about your problem. That problem that you have right now, you woke up with it, you drove to church with it, and you're sitting there right with that problem in your mind right now. Paul says this about your problem. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment. The first thing to understand about our problem, whatever the problem is, all of our problems are temporary. They won't last forever. Even if you have a problem, for the sake of the argument, let's say you have a problem, a physical problem, be easy to illustrate, and you say, John, that's not true. My problem is going to last forever. Well, think about this. After you've been in heaven for a million years and you look back on the problem that you had when you were on the earth, you won't be able to say my problem lasted forever. From the perspective of heaven, you'll say, you know what? It didn't seem like it at the time, didn't feel like it at the time, but from the perspective of heaven, 
That problem I had was temporary. All of our problems are temporary. And there's something about knowing that our problems have an end date. Now, most problems have an end date on earth, you know. Now, some problems we may have to deal with all of our lives, but even then, they'll end when we get to heaven. But most of our problems have an end date even on earth. I think about this COVID-19. And we've all been keeping up with that and following that on the news and, and following what the, what the doctors are saying and, and the advice they're giving. And I was encouraged a week ago when I saw one of the doctors here in Houston at Baylor College of Medicine, Dr. Peter Hotez. If you've seen him on any of the news, he's, he's a very informative person and he has insights. Now, until last week, everything he had said had pretty much been negative and discouraging. It's kind of like doom and gloom. You hate to see him come on the TV. But last week when he came on, he said, hey, now Pfizer has a vaccine. Moderna has a vaccine. He said, this is really the beginning of the end of COVID-19. And he said, once we get to April of next year, the world is going to look a lot more normal than it does right now. It's going to look a lot differently than it does right now. And he said, once we get to July, if people will take the vaccine, then he said, the world is going to look completely different than it does right now and very close to normal, if not normal. And it was the first time that I had heard a doctor pull out a date like that, even though those months are still a little bit away. Here we think about that. Here we are in November, and hearing a doctor say it's going to be a lot better in April, and it's even going to be better than that in July. There's something about knowing that there's light at the end of the tunnel. It's not going to be like this forever that encourages us. So think about what I'm saying. What's going to happen in April, May, June, and July if we'll focus on that encourages us here in November. Well, it's the same thing about heaven. As we go through life, we have problems in life, we have to remember that eventually the problems end and they're not going to last forever. But not only that, Paul says you need to understand not only are your problems temporary and they're only for a moment in the grand scheme of things, but look at the next phrase. He said, our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Paul says this about your problems. He says your problems are working for you, not against you. Most of the time when we think about our problems, we view problems as enemies. We view problems as something to get out of, something to escape, and that's understandable. But Paul says here, your problems are not working against you. Your problems are working for you when you keep in mind that whatever problem you have in life, God has allowed you to have it, and if you'll respond properly to that problem, it's going to develop your faith. It's going to make you more patient. It's going to give you more not only sympathy but empathy. You're going to be able to be understanding and, and empathetic of others who are going through their things. So I just say that today to remind you that whatever problem you have, it's temporary and it's working for you if you will respond properly. And so that says to us that nothing will ever come into our life that cannot ultimately be used to somehow build us up, make us better, help us to grow and to work for us and not against us. Now, let me mention a second thing that that looking at heaven and thinking about heaven helps to change our perspective of, and that is our possessions, not only our problems, but our possessions. When we think about heaven, we're able to see our possessions more clearly. And here's what I mean by that. Whatever possessions you have, 
those possessions aren't really yours. I sometimes will say, you know, hey, come to my house. Well, it's not really my house. It's God's house. And it's just, I live in that house. I'm a steward of that house. Or I say, this is my car. Well, that's not really my car. That's God's car. I say, well, this is my bank account. This is my investment. This is my retirement. No, it's not. That's God. God, The Bible says God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Everything belongs to God. And so we're just stewards of it. It changes our perspective on our possessions. And what it helps us to do is to hold things more loosely. Somebody has said, anything that you hold too tightly, you'll lose. Anything you hold loosely, though, God might let you keep, in other words, for now. But, but our houses and our cars, I mean, I say, this is my house. Well, I mean, how long is that my house? That house, when I go to heaven, that house is not going to rapture up with me into heaven. I mean, it's just mine for a little while and yours too. So hold things loosely. And then the other thing I want to say, and I'm not going to develop these, these next, this next one as much as I, I, I did the first one. But not only our problems and our possessions, but when we lose someone in death, when someone passes away, thinking about, our, thinking about heaven helps us to see the passing away, the physical death of a loved one from a clearer perspective. Now, everybody here today, I would imagine, believes in heaven, that when a Christian dies, we go to heaven. If you believe that, say amen. I think we all believe that. And those watching at home today, you believe the same thing. But you know what? When it's your loved one who dies, if you think about it, the only thing really that can give you, or the greatest thing that can give you peace in your heart is to know that your loved one is absent from the body and present with the Lord, that your loved one is in heaven. We were in this, I was, my dad and I were stood right here yesterday with the family of Hoyt Roberts, one of the godliest men we've ever known, and we talked about his life and, and all the things he had done and experienced, but in the service, the most important thing we could remind that family of yesterday is that Hoyt is in heaven and he's with Jesus. And so today... You know, it may be that you are right now going through the grieving process. I, I look around this room, and I, I, I don't know all of you. Some of you I don't know at all. Many of you I know extremely well. And so for many of you here today, I know what your problems are, and I know what you're going through. And I know some of you are going through in the grieving process right now. And I want to just say, I want to just remind you today, maybe one person here today needs to hear what I'm about to say. If your husband, wife, son, daughter, father, mother, brother, sister, or friend, if they had a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, right now at this very moment, they are alive and well in the presence of God in heaven. And knowing that and thinking about that and focusing on that, I was thinking about my granddad on my mom's side. We called him Pop. And my mom and, and her dad, Pop, were extremely close and when he died many years ago now, my mother had a really difficult time with that because of how close they were. So our family all went to Atlanta, for the, Georgia, for the funeral. And then uh, my dad came back to Pasadena, and, and uh, I, came, I went back to Fort Worth where I was living at the time. My brother, wherever he was living at that time, he went back there. My mom stayed in Georgia to be with her mom for several days after the funeral. And she called me one day, and she said, John... She said, I have to be honest with you, I'm having a hard time. She said, you know, I love Pop, and, and, and he and I were just so close. And she said, I'm just having a hard time. And, and we just talked about that, and I tried to encourage her in some way. And, and my, parents, my grandparents had a big garden back behind their house, and so she at some point went back in that garden. And she said, John, I just got down on my knees. This was a little time later from that first call. 
and she just prayed, and she said, God, I know Daddy is in heaven, and I know he's with you. And, and she said, John, in that garden, as I just prayed and focused on heaven, she said, it's just like God just lifted that spirit of, of almost depression off of me and helped me to see that, that Pop is in heaven and he's with Jesus. And she said something, and I'm going to take this one step further today. This may be for one person. This may not apply to anybody, but maybe there's one person here today. As the weeks and months went on from that, I remember one day I was in Fort Worth at seminary, and she called me, and she said, John, an amazing thing has happened to me. She said, I know Pop is in heaven, and I've, I know he's in a new body and all that, but she said, and I know he's happy. And that's something else you need to remember about your loved one. Not only are they in heaven, not only are they alive, not only are they in a new body, but they're happy. And mom said to me, she said, you know, John, just knowing that my dad is happy. She said, that just made me happy knowing he's happy. And then she said this. She said, I can't explain this except to say that Pop's presence in my heart is more real now than when I had him in the flesh. She said, I can't call him on the phone. I can't go visit him. I can't see him. But she said, I can't explain it except to say his presence with me in my heart because he's alive and he's with God. He isn't dead. He's alive. And so when, what I'm saying is when we look at death from a perspective of, of, of just a human perspective, that can be awful because it's final and everything's oh. But when you look at death from heaven's perspective and you, know, you say, you know what? Absent from the body, present with the Lord. And all of those who believe in Jesus are in heaven with him. And one day we're going to see them again. Amen. You still with me? You believe all that to be true? So what I'm saying is set your mind on things above. Let, let heaven be your spiritual set of glasses. And look at your problems, your possessions, the passing away of your loved ones. Look at all these things from the perspective of heaven, and it will give you hope, and it will give you peace. But let me mention one other thing today. Thinking about heaven changes our priorities in life. It helps us to view our priorities differently. I've always heard it said, and I know you have too, you know, sometimes you hear it instead of a person, they'll say, well, that person is so heavenly-minded they're no earthly good. Have you ever heard that? They're so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. Well, I don't, I don't think that statement's true. I don't think it's possible to be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. If that were possible, Jesus never would have said, set your mind on things above. He would have said, set your mind on things on the earth so you can be effective on the earth. Set your mind on that pandemic. Set your mind on how divided the nation is. Set your mind on how your loved one has died. Focus on that. No, Jesus said, set your mind on things above. And from the perspective of heaven, now look at your problems. Now look at your possessions. Now look at the death of the one you've loved. But also look at your priorities in life from the perspective of heaven. Somebody says they're so earthly minded, they're so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. I say today, and the Bible teaches today, the more heavenly minded we are, the more earthly good we become. The people in the history of time who have had their minds set on heaven have done the most good on earth. And history proves that to be true, and I'll give you a couple of illustrations today. Let me illustrate that, first of all, in the world of education, colleges and universities. I was very interested last week as I learned many things I did not know about how many of the colleges and universities in our own country were founded and who they were founded by. Let me begin with Harvard University. Harvard, interestingly enough, is the oldest university in America. It was founded in 1636 for the purpose 
of training ministers for the gospel ministry. In fact, if you go back and look at what prompted the beginning of many of the new colleges and universities back at that time, that was why they were founded to train people to serve the Lord. In 1636, Harvard's, Harvard College's student notebook said this, and I came across this last week, rule number two, this is like the student handbook. Now, I wasn't able to find rule number one. I don't know what rule number one was. But rule number two said this, let every student be plainly instructed and earnestly pressed to consider well the main end of his life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life. That's what, the, that's what Harvard said in 1636. All these students coming to the school now to study all the, in all these different fields, but they were instructed. Rule number two, keep in mind, more important than whatever your major is, the purpose of education is that you could know Jesus Christ and God the Father in a personal way. Harvard, interestingly enough, was named after a man named Reverend John Harvard. He was a minister, and that's who it was named after. I read and learned also about Princeton University last week. The first president of Princeton was a man named Reverend Jonathan Dickinson. I was interested to learn the first 12 presidents of Princeton were reverends. They were ministers. And that streak wasn't broken until the 13th president, Woodrow Wilson, became president. And that stopped the, uh, the string of the, of the ministers leading that. But Reverend Dickinson said this, that the first president of Princeton. He said, cursed be all that learning that is contrary to the cross of Christ. In other words, any education that opposes the cross of Christ is no education at all. That is foolishness. The Bible says the fool has said in his heart there is no God. And so he said that's not, that's not education and that's not learning. Listen to this. Of the first 108 colleges founded in the United States, 106 of them were started by Christians. And so here are people who were heavenly minded. They had their, th their minds set on things above and yet they're doing so much good on the earth. By, 18, by the end of 1860, there were 246 colleges in America. 17 of those were state universities. Almost all the others were founded by Christian denominations or by individuals who avowed a religious purpose. So we can see, and history bears out, that in the founding of these colleges and universities, uh, Christians played, in many of them, a prominent role. Now let's think about another example. Let's think about health care and specifically hospitals. And, and this is, you know, when we think about healing, let me just say this about healing. Remember this, that Jesus Christ is the ultimate healer. Not only is Jesus the Savior, but He is the healer. And in the Gospels, when He sent His disciples out to preach, here's what He said to them, preach the Word and heal the sick. Now, we're big on preaching the Word, and we ought to be, and that's even more important than healing the sick. Because if you heal somebody who's sick, they're still going to die. But Jesus nonetheless said to his disciples, when you go out to minister, here are the two primary things I want you to do. I want you to preach the word so that people can be saved, and I want you to heal the sick so that sick people can be made well. What did Jesus? He's the one who said, the, him, the one who is well has no need of a physician, but the one who is sick. And so Jesus was a healer, but so was Peter. 
And so was John. They healed people. And think about the Apostle Paul. He healed people. And as we follow the development and the expansion of the church in the early centuries, we find that it was Christian people and Christian denominations largely who founded hospitals. Now, I read about last week a man named Dr. Gary Ferngren. I didn't know his name, and I doubt you do either. He's He's the leading expert on the early history of hospitals. And here's what he wrote, and it was published by Johns Johns Hopkins University. He said, The hospital was, in origin and conception, a distinctively Christian institution, rooted in Christian concepts of charity and philanthropy. There were no pre-Christian institutions in the ancient world that served the purposes that Christian hospitals were created to serve. None of the provisions for health care in classical times resembled hospitals as they were developed in the late 4th century. And so hospitals as we know them today were founded by Christians who were what? Who were heavenly minded. And yet they said, you know what? We want to be earthly good. Yes, we're going to heaven. Yes, we know that has already been settled. But because we're going to heaven, because what God has done for us, because of of His grace and mercy and compassion to us, we want to extend that same grace, mercy, and compassion to others. And so uh, Christians really are responsible for for the founding of hospitals. Even in Houston, let me get this date right, the first hospital that was founded in Houston was St. Joseph's downtown, founded in 1887 by Catholic order, known as the Sisters of Charity of the Incarnate Word. Now, that's not to say that Christians are the only people who are involved in education, and it's not to say that Christians are the only people involved in medicine. There are many Jewish doctors and nurses, Muslim doctors and Buddhist doctors, they're atheist doctors. So I'm not saying that only Christians help people. In fact, Hippocrates, who's the founder of, considered the father of medicine, lived in the 5th to 4th century B.C. Uh, He certainly wasn't a Christian. He lived before the time of Christ. And if you study the life of Hippocrates, you you know, doctors and nurses take the Hippocratic oath. If you study his life, it's really not clear if he was a follower of God or if he was a pagan. It's just not quite clear. So I'm not suggesting that only Christians are out there trying to help people. That's not what I'm saying at all. There are a lot of people trying to help people. But what I am saying is history bears out in the founding of many of the college and universities and in the establishment of the hospital system that we know today, it was heavenly-minded Christians who were doing that earthly good. Now, I even got to thinking about the ministry of Jesus in the New Testament. You won't find a verse in the Bible where Jesus said to his disciples, hey, come on, let's go to Galilee today and visit the hospital. There wasn't a hospital. Jesus was healing people outside of hospitals because it hadn't been invented yet. It was after that that those were uh, created. And so I say all that today to say, as you live your life down here on earth, problems, death of loved ones, trying to figure out what your priorities are, how can you be a blessing to somebody else? What I'm encouraging you today to do is to look at everything in life from the perspective and through the lens of heaven. And as you think about heaven, here we are just a few days before Thanksgiving, and we're thinking about something that we normally wouldn't think about on this Sunday. We're thinking about heaven. And we're thinking about the fact that not only are we glad to be going to heaven, but thinking about heaven will change everything about our life on earth. I think if you were really studying the life of those early disciples, 
the Apostle Paul and others, one of the things that they did better than most of us do, they thought more about heaven. They were so heavenly minded that they were incredibly earthly good. And I encourage us today, let's live our lives focused on heaven and even looking at life on earth from that perspective. Amen.